Amen. Isaiah chapter 4 is our text. Isaiah chapter 4. If you remember last week, we looked through Isaiah chapter 3, we came across this phrase, the day of the Lord. Do you remember that? Yeah. The day of the Lord is a great theme in Isaiah as well as through many of the Scriptures. It is a time when God's sovereignty is put on grand display. And now Isaiah warned the people that because of their unrepentant disobedience, the day of the Lord would mean destruction and judgment for the Jerusalem of Isaiah's day, for old Jerusalem, for the earthly Jerusalem. But amazingly, Isaiah sees a better day, a day that would mean beauty and glory for the Jerusalem of the last days, for the new Jerusalem, for the heavenly Jerusalem. And it is that beautiful vision of this glorious future that comes up again and again and again throughout this book of judgment. The Lord continues to encourage His true people with the promises and the hope of restoration and glory in the latter days. That vision of glory is what is here in our text to encourage and to inspire us. So let us take a look again at the word of our Lord this morning. Isaiah chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment, and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. And over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. What a glorious passage of hope, of comfort, promise for the people of God that there is a day coming that will be, in the words of Isaiah, beautiful and glorious. A day in which the pride and honor of Jerusalem will be restored. But of course, that is all set against a very dark backdrop. If you look at the end of verse 2, you get it in this ominous word that the glory of that day will be for the what? For the survivors. The pro- and, and then in verse 3, it says that the 
It speaks about those who are left and those who are remain. In other words, God's judgment was going to fall on that Jerusalem of Isaiah's day, but there would be a remnant who would come to experience the glory of the new Jerusalem. This dark backdrop presumes a great desolation would come upon Israel. And of course, that's exactly what happened in the years that followed. A great, the Lord did bring great desolations upon His people. The Assyrian Empire was an incredibly violent people, and they harassed and killed many of the people in Israel during the 8th century B.C. They completely obliterated the northern kingdom, if you remember your Bible history. Later in the 6th century, Jerusalem itself would be laid waste by the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Under King Nebuchadnezzar, Jerusalem and its temple would become pillaged and the best and the brightest of the land would be carried away for years and years in captivity in a faraway place. Afterwards, that land would be dominated by the Greek Seleucids. Their temple would be desecrated by Antiochus IV. It would only briefly and partially be liberated by the Maccabees in the second century, but the people would again suffer great desolation. And then in Jesus' day, The people continued in their rejection of God and of His Messiah, and their temple and their city would be destroyed again in A.D. 70 by the Roman Empire. That temple would never again be rebuilt, in fact, up to this day. This is the great desolation promised by Christ Himself. And of course, the prophets foresaw many of these things. The prophet Daniel foresaw all of these devastating, desolating world powers. But Isaiah says that these desolations that would come upon Judah and Jerusalem would have a twofold effect. There would be a twofold nature to all of these desolations. Take a look at the end of verse 3. You'll see this. He speaks of a spirit, the spirit of judgment, and another spirit. Yeah, the spirit of burning, a spirit of fire. I want to talk about these two for a moment. The Lord says that these desolations will come upon His people, and in the first case, God was bringing a upon them a spirit of judgment. In other words, these desolations would be the judgment of God on unbelieving Israel. And this judgment and the reasons for this judgment are depicted and expressed in chapter 5 in this sort of parable in a song. So let's read again chapter 5, or let's read chapter 5, beginning in verses 1 through 7. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. Get this parable now. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a vat in it 
and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Nothing but sour grapes, bad fruit. And now, verse 3, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not, than I, that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, and behold, bloodshed, and for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. God, as it were, took this vine... Israel, his people, and planted her in the land that he had prepared for them. God's intent was for Israel to be, as it were, a new Garden of Eden, the planting of the Lord where where his people would flourish and be fruitful for his glory, where he would walk and talk with them in their midst. And like Adam, he told them to be fruitful and to develop a godly culture, and to guard that land from any uncleanness or impurity. But like Adam, Israel rebelled against God. And now they would, for their rebellion, be expelled from that land. God would remove His protection from around them. The vineyard would be trampled down. It would be destroyed. It would be paradise lost. And the other prophets continue with this same kind of imagery of the judgment of God upon the land of Israel. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 10. Go up through her vine rows, God tells Jeremiah, and destroy, but make not a full end. Strip away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 16. The Lord once called you, a green olive tree, beautiful, with good fruit. But with the roar of a great tempest, he will set fire to it, and its branches will be consumed. So the the Lord was going to visit the people of Israel with a spirit of judgment. All of these desolations would bring a judgment upon Israel for her unbelief. But there is a second aspect to the nature of these desolations that God would bring upon His people. And if you go back to chapter 4, verse 3, you'll see it again. Not only will He bring the spirit of judgment, but these desolations were also being brought about by a spirit of burning, right? A spirit of fire. And if you have an ESV, there might be a little footnote right next to that. And if you look at the footnote, it says, next to burning... It can say it can also be translated as purging, and of course that's the nature of fire, right? When God, when fire comes, it can burn something up, like wood, hay, and stubble. 
but it can also have a purifying effect, like with gold and silver, causing the dross to rise to the surface so it can be removed. In fact, this term is translated purge many times in the Old Testament, most often in the book of Deuteronomy. We just went through a class in the Old Testament survey on Deuteronomy. How many times the Lord said in that book that He would bring punishment and judgment on wrongdoers in Israel so that the evil would be purged from the land. That the land would be purged and cleansed from evil. And in that manner, um, the, the land of Israel in Isaiah's time, that, that nation would be purged and cleansed by the refining fire of God's judgments. And that's exactly what's in view here. If you see in verse 4, uh, the Lord has in mind not just punishment of unbelief, that would definitely be a part of what He was doing, but He was also purifying His people. This would bring a kind of washing away of the filth of the daughters of Zion. It would be a cleansing of the bloodstains of Jerusalem. And I want to remind us that God uses trials and temptations to purge His people. He uses the fiery trials to test them, to prove them, sometimes to expose our sin and our weakness, our selfishness, to deepen our repentance, to cause us to more wholeheartedly acknowledge our dependence on Him. The Lord uses His fiery trials in just that way to cause us to lean on Christ more earnestly for the forgiveness of our sins to cause us to trust in God's sustaining grace when the fiery trials come. And I don't think he does this only individually. He, he, he does this corporately in his church. He uses the trials, the difficulties, the temptations, sometimes in the form of allowing heresy to run rampant, sometimes allowing persecutions in the church. Why does God do this? He is, by these means, purifying His church, removing the dross, as it were. Some follow after the false teachers, proving that they were never really part of us. Others fall away when persecution comes. But in all of this, in all of this, God, the end result is that uh, is a purer church. And, you know, honestly, Christians ought to rejoice in that. To rejoice that the Lord, even in the midst of the great trials that He brings upon His church, is in fact purifying her so that she is a glory to Him in every way. Isaiah was predicting that after the fires of God's judgment would sweep through Judah and Jerusalem, that there would be a remnant. In verse 3, he says, he calls them, everyone who has been recorded for life. And he says that those people would be holy when the 
the fiery uh, trials of God had swept through their land. God would make holy those whose names were recorded for life. And that kind of terminology, of course, is found in the Scripture as well. Revelation chapter 13 speaks of those whose names were written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain, right? So those who are left, those who who remain, are what Paul calls in Romans chapter 11, verse 5, a remnant chosen by grace. Not on account of their good works, for there is none that does good, right? Not on account of their good wills, for there is none that seeks after God, but on account of God who shows mercy to whom He will show mercy. The Lord had had recorded the names of His people to preserve them, and, and, and these great desolations from all of these nations would come upon these people, and those who were unbelieving would be burned up, as it were, would be just consumed in the wrath of God. But those who were God's true people would come out the other side stronger, purer, holier. This was God's intent. There is a day coming, Isaiah said, when that remnant would experience true holiness and real fruitfulness to God. When the garden of God's people would once again blossom and flourish and give Him glory. That is, that the people of God would produce good deeds that spring from God Himself. And it would take place in this way, Isaiah said. Look now again at verse 2. Chapter 4, verse 2. This great day of glory would come in this way. In that day, he says, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. And the rest of Isaiah will go on to develop this theme. God would destroy the garden of Israel, right? He would tear down the walls and let the the wild beasts of the earth trample across his, His garden, His vineyard. It would be like cutting down the tree of Israel. God would use Assyria and Babylon as, as his axe in his hand, and through them he would chop down his, peop- his, his people. He would cut down the garden of God, as it were, so that in the end just a stump would remain. But sometimes there's a little bit of life in the stump, right? There's a seed of life yet in that stump. And Isaiah will say that that seed will grow and become a little shoot popping out of that trunk. You ever see that? Uh, when, when we had our old house, I would constantly, I don't know why, laziness or what, I would just mow over this one tree, this stubborn tree that kept growing up in our yard where we didn't want it to grow. And you know, when they're small, you can just run over it with the lawnmower. And it got bigger and bigger, and so I would cut it off. And uh, But every single time, this little shoot would start coming up out of that dead, what I thought was a dead stump. Isaiah says, this is what's going to happen. There will be a shoot that will come out, and that sh- tiny shoot will grow into a, a single branch. And that branch will grow and become a nourishing trunk that will support, in the end, many branches. And that 
tree will grow and branch out and cover again the land with fruit until it becomes a new vineyard bearing much good fruit for the glory of God. That branch that comes up out of this cut-off stump of Israel would be none other than the Messiah. And again, the other prophets continue this sort of, uh, this sort of language. Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. There's that terminology again. Uh, David's dynasty would be cut off because of the wicked kings that sprang from him. But God would raise up a, a righteous branch from David's line and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Israel will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which that branch will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. This theme continues throughout the Old Testament. Zechariah saw a vision of, of a lampstand. You remember like the lampstand in the temple? And if you've ever noticed in your reading of Scripture um, that that lampstand is described in a way that makes it sound like a tree, right? It's got leaves and and buds, and, and, it, and it, it's, a, it's a living, lighted tree. It's a tree of light. And this tree lamp needed a constant supply of oil, so the priests would bring oil in all of the time and, and keep this thing lit. Well, in Zechariah's vision, there is this lamp that is constantly supplied with all of the oil it will ever need. It never burns low. It never burns out. It just continues to bring light. And if, he says this is the symbol of the Messiah on whom the Spirit of God would be poured out without measure. He would do the will of God. He would deliver His people in the power of the Spirit. And Zechariah 6 verse 12 says it this way, And thus says the Lord of hosts, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. And of course, one day after all of these desolations upon Israel, Christ would come. He would build the true temple. That is us, his people, living stones. He would be the true vine that would bring real fruitfulness to the people of God. With the coming of the Messiah, the church would be a pure church, not the barren vineyard that was Israel. He would cleanse and purify the sons of Levi. The faithless branches, as Paul says in Romans 11, would be cut off from unbelief. And being grafted into Christ, the wild branches of all of the nations of the earth, you and I, would come to bear fruit as Christ lives out His life through us. This is the promise, this is the hope, the glory that Isaiah foresaw would come after all of the desolations that would come upon the people of Israel. Jesus continues with the same imagery Himself. In John chapter 15, a passage I'm sure that's pretty familiar to you. John 15, if you want to turn there. 
Jesus says in verse 1, I am the vine, the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. That's what Isaiah predicted, right? That God would bring a desolation upon that tree, on that vineyard. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, Jesus said, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, He purges, He purifies in order that it may bear, what? More fruit. Verse 3, already Jesus said to His disciples, you are clean, you are pruned and purged because of the Word that I have spoken to you. It was the Word of Christ that would produce fruitfulness in the lives of His disciples. Verse 4, He says, abide in Me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. So here is that single shoot that's grown into a a branch that's now become a trunk supporting many branches, right? I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Boy, we know that all too well. Verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this is my my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And then if you jump down to verse 16, he says to them, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. This fruit of which Isaiah spoke, our Lord is speaking about, that fruit is nothing less than the life of Christ lived out through us, right? It's the life of Jesus Christ lived out in us and through us. It's the manifestation of His Spirit in us, producing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of being united to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Isaiah foresaw a day when Jerusalem would be purified. They would become new Jerusalem when it would flourish into the garden of God bearing fruit for His glory. That day is further described in Isaiah. If you go back to our text, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, That day is further described this way, verse 5, Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. You remember where that comes from, right? That, of course, is the glory cloud that led Israel through the wilderness, out of Egypt and through this barren wilderness until He brought them into the land. He was with them. He provided them. He shielded them from the Egyptians. He 
brightened their darkness. He was, this was evidence of his presence with them. And it came to rest over the tabernacle, the place of God's presence. But what Isaiah foresees here is that this glory cloud now is going to rest over the whole site of Mount Zion. Not just over the tabernacle, but it will spread out over the whole city. The whole city, like the prophets said, would be holy unto the Lord. Even, one of the prophets said, even the common everyday kitchen vessels, the, 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 the pots and pans you use to do your cooking in your house, will be as holy to the Lord as the temple's uh, utensils, those holy utensils used in the in the offering of sacrifices. The Lord, in other words, is going to bring more glory in this new Jerusalem, more fruitfulness than ever appeared in the days of Israel. This is already being fulfilled, friends. This is being fulfilled right here and right now in the purified New Testament church. The new Jerusalem in which nothing unclean will ever enter it or anyone who does what is detestable or false. And one day it will reach its fullness. One day it will reach its fullness when Christ returns and all evil will be judged and completely eliminated from the face of the earth. This latter-day glory of God will hover over His people, Isaiah says. It will overshadow the whole of the new Jerusalem, covered completely in the glory of God. And that covering, he says in verse 6 now, that covering will be a booth, like a booth over them, to give them shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. And of course, this is all a reminder of uh, Sukkoth, the Feast of Booths, when they would, even today, some Jews do this, will leave their homes and go out and build a temporary shelter to remind themselves of the provision of God throughout the wilderness, how He took care of them when they uh, were uh, not yet in the land. The Lord would lead and protect and provide for His people. But Isaiah sees a day when the whole of the New Jerusalem will be covered by this glory of God that will provide protection, guidance, leadership, grace, and the presence of God. And he also says something interesting in verse 5 about this covering, this glory covering, this, this shelter that's over them. This is a very specific kind of shelter. Verse 5, this end time overhanging glory of God is called a what? Verse 5, a canopy, right? That's the ESV word anyway. A canopy, in Hebrew, a chuppah. Every good Jew knows what a chuppah is. It's still used today. Anytime you go to a Jewish wedding, they will be under a canopy, a chuppah. This is the wedding canopy. Similar to even today, non-Jews, when you go and watch a wedding, you'll see sometimes the couple will be standing under some sort of arbor made with flowers or something like that, right? Have you ever seen uh, the movie Fiddler on the Roof? Yeah, some of you have. And uh, at the wedding of the oldest sister, the, one of the younger sisters dreams, is there a canopy in store for me? 
That's this word right here. It symbolized um, their, their wedding chamber and where their marriage would be consummated and that they would establish a house together, a home together. And this is, again, another picture uh, of fruitfulness layered onto this imagery of the garden that would blossom under the glory of God in the New Jerusalem. Now here's the imagery of the glory of God being like that wedding chuppah that would cover the people of God and bring real fruitfulness. Just like the seed goes into the ground to produce the fruit of the earth, it goes into the woman to produce the fruit of the womb. There's a day coming, says Isaiah, when the union between God and His people will be a fruitful one. Unlike the the so-called people of God of Israel throughout these generations who resisted, who showed no fruitfulness in, in large part, there will be a day coming that the Lord will be truly fruitful with His new people. Isaiah chapter 54 says it this way, Sing, O barren one who did not bear, unfruitful womb, right? Of, of, of old Israel. Sing, O Israel, excuse me, sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who was married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. They're talking about expanding the, the tent of Israel, right? You've got to build onto your house. Why? Because God is going to bring people from the left and the right. You will spread abroad. Your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. And that is exactly what's happening. We're seeing right now today the fulfillments of that prophecy of Isaiah as the gospel is spreading out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and now to the uttermost parts of the earth, right? This is exactly what we're seeing just as Isaiah foresaw. And it is bearing fruit not only in all of the nations, but in every one of us individually as we are bound to the Lord Jesus Christ in holy matrimony. You know, Isaiah, or, or um, Romans 7, Paul uses this illustration, right? That you were at one point under the covenant of works, you were bound to the law. You were bound to earn salvation through obedience by nature or to earn God's judgment by your disobedience. But he says, when you come into union with Christ, you're united with Him in His death so that the marriage bonds to the law can be broken so that you can be married to Jesus Christ, as it were. And then he goes on to say that that marriage, when you are united to Jesus in faith, that marriage will be fruitful. You will bear fruit to the glory of God. Here's the way he says it in Romans 7, verse 4. My brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that, he, that we may bear fruit for God. 
For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And certainly that's true. When we were apart from God's grace, apart from Christ, we, we bore no good fruit, just stillborn. But now the product of our union with Christ is life unto God. And again, this is fulfilled already with the coming of Christ who called Himself the Bridegroom but it awaits its fullness at Christ's return. That day that we speak of as the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? We sometimes call it the consummation, right? Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. This is the consummation of this marriage that will bring fruitfulness around the face of the earth. The people of God spread over the earth and do deeds that bring Him glory everywhere. What a glorious future is ours. But I want to remind you that the future is now. That we are living already in the last days. A purified Jerusalem. The enlarging of the tent of God to fill the whole earth. The fruitfulness that we have in union with Christ. I want to close this morning with just admonishing us that all of our fruitfulness all a life that pleases God, that glorifies God, only and always comes about by union with Christ. He alone is the fruitful one. He alone is that branch that bears good fruit. If you would bear fruit, friend, you must abide in Him and He in you. You must stay with the Lord Jesus Christ. You can have a life that's fruitful, or you can have a life that's absolutely barren. A life that's fruitful will only come about by a faith union with Christ, by staying in Him, staying in His Word, staying in prayer, yielding to His Spirit. Most of you that I'm speaking to this morning have borne some fruit for God's glory by the grace of God. Amen? And you should get on your knees and pray, Lord, purge me that I might bear more fruit. Bring whatever is necessary that I may learn to lean more upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I thought about why it is that we don't bear much fruit sometimes. There are times of our lives that are not very fruitful, right? And if you think about it in the context of marriage, Isaiah points to here, I think it's easy to understand that there are times when marriages falter, when marriages struggle when there is a loss of intimacy in that relationship. Why does that happen? On a human level, why does it happen? Well, sometimes it happens because of distractedness. We get caught up in other aspects of our calling, uh, work, jobs, kids, and we neglect that relationship. Sometimes a marriage falters because of infidelity. Because that person is finding, uh, seeking for joy and happiness elsewhere outside the marriage. And you know that happens on a spiritual level as well. People who are Christians commit spiritual adultery. We pursue other things that we believe are going to really, that we have to have in order to be happy. 
in order to be fruitful. Sometimes a marriage falters just because of the coldness that comes from taking someone for granted. And certainly that happens in a spiritual way as well. And we grow accustomed to the grace of God and we begin to take it for granted. And I find that sometimes like the like the lover in the Song of Solomon, his presence is removed. And we we then we know. Lord, I, I need you. I want you. My soul desires you. Like a married couple, intimacy is maintained by spending time together, by talking, by listening. And the same is true in a spiritual realm. If you would bear fruit, friend, you must receive with meekness the implanted word the seed of the Word of God into your heart, into your soul. That's where, that's what's going to bring fruitfulness. That you would yield to the Holy Spirit, to His will for your life. You would die to self. Live the life of Christ being lived out through you. Let no woman think that her womb will be fruitful if she is not intimate with her husband. She has not yielded to his advances. And so let no Christian think that he will be fruitful if he is not intimate with his Lord in prayer and yielded to the advances of the Holy Spirit in his heart, bringing that word to bear in his life. Let not the sower of the land think that the land will be fruitful if it hasn't received the seed. And so let no one think that he will be fruitful who has not received the implanted seed of the Word of God. Dear friend, this morning, the charge is to be united to Jesus. To be a branch in the vine. To be intimate with the Lord. United to Him in oneness of soul as a husband and wife are together. I ask you this morning, are you grafted into the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you abiding in the Lord? Intimately connected with Him on a daily basis? Friday night, our we gathered a number of us for the Valentine's dinner and our brother Josh talked about the need in our marriages for continued renewal and restoration and and confession and drawing near to one another. And I'm telling you that that imagery, uh, the, the, the marriages that we have are supposed to teach us something about the relationship that we have with our Lord that we need constantly to draw near to Him, to confess, to be reconciled to Him, to receive His Word with open hearts so that we may be fruitful for His glory. Fruit grows out of that vital connection to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there may be, there may be somebody here this morning that the Lord, His message to you is that you need to draw near again. Your heart has grown cold towards your, towards your husband, as it were. 
you, you've, you've become disconnected, as it were, from the vine, the, the source of your life. And you need to get back close to the Lord, draw near to Him, receive His Word, pray again, and let Him live out His life through you so that you may bear fruit for the glory of God. Our Heavenly Father, let this be so. And I ask today, Lord, that You would even cause this Word right now to bear fruit in our lives, that You would implant it into us and cause that seed of the Word to grow. This would not be lost upon me or upon Your people, but it would have its good effect. In Jesus' name, Amen.